So learning how to walk, a young child learning how to walk is a great analogy for the, the practice. Um, that if a child was able to stand up and was wobbly on their feet, then they would be afraid to take a step. And if they take the step, then they're going to fall down. If they fall down and just stay down, they'll never learn to walk. Basically, what walking is, is learning to stand up. Okay. Another thing that we can say then on that way is sati is a skill to be developed. The skill of remember. remembering. Yes. Remembering to come back. Okay. Yeah. And that when we go down into some dip or whatever, at the bottom of that dip is when we're not remembering that we can come out of it, but then we do. There's another analogy, and that is the analogy of teaching a dog how to come when it's called. Okay. Now, uh, let's not get into all the mechanics of that, but one of the things for sure that is if you tie a dog to a tree, he's not going to learn to come when he's called. Okay. Yeah. That's an important point. It's the same point exactly is that if we don't learn to stand up, we won't learn to walk. Which means we have to remember to stand up again. We have to remember to get up. If sure. we can't get up like the dog can't come when it's called, then it's not going to learn anything. And a lot of people think that, oh, all I need to do is to tie my mind to the tree or the object of meditation, and that's all it takes. Yeah. No, that's not the skill we're even needing to develop. The skill that we need to develop is the skill of when we fall down to pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off and yeah. to come back. up. That's mm -hmm. the skill that we're uh, developing here. Because we um, are in dukkha, or let us say we fall down a lot. And most of the time when we fall down, we want somebody to help us up. When we fall down a lot, we get used to, oh, well, this is how life is. Yeah. And everybody's walking all over me. Okay. Right. But the teachings of the Buddha is to recognize we've got skills to be developed. And the only time that we're going to develop those skills is when we're already falling down. That in fact, if we're developing the skill of getting up, pretty soon when we're knocked off balance, we begin to recognize, oh, I can put my foot over there or whatnot like that, and then I don't even fall down. That that's the skill of the young child of learning to walk, is learning also how to prevent ourselves from falling down, but that skill was just sooner than instead yeah. of learning how to pick ourselves up, we're learning how to pick ourselves up when we're not even falling, we're not having falling all the way down yet. Yeah. We've learned to catch ourselves. Yeah, okay? before it even happens, maybe. Down. Pardon? Before it even happens, maybe. Precisely so. This is now uh, looking at it from this perspective is the teaching of Samupada. Mm -hmm. 
Samupada, okay, so let's use the example of anger as just an example. That when we are angry, many times we don't even know that we're angry, but everybody else in the room knows it. When we're in an argument with someone, everybody in the room knows that we're arguing when, but we don't know it ourselves. So learning to figure out when we're angry is a really, really important point. In other words, we need to learn that um, that we've already fallen. Rather than lying to ourselves about it. So learning to recognize this is anger. Now, the example would be that if two people are in an argument and that argument doesn't stop and they keep at it and keep at it it's probably going to eventually become violent. And if it continues and they're not stopping it, it's going to wind up someone's getting hurt or maybe we've got a body to bury. But everyone eventually learns or recognizes that they've gone too far with the argument. That's the whole quality that we're coming to now is how soon can we catch it? Do we have to be in the argument like that before we wake up? And that's what happens often. A good example is is when the husband or the wife will slam the door on the way out is because they recognize this argument is not going anywhere. This is not a good thing to do. Let me out of here. Okay, so we, we as ordinary people eventually wake up in that argument. But with Dhamma, we're recognizing how soon can we do that? Can we actually start into the argument, recognize this as an argument, and then put a stop to it? Then later, we begin to get really good at that so that one loud outburst, one shout, one expletive, one thing, and we wake up right then. This is what's called a once returner. This is that I got it. I don't even let it out of my or I let it out of my mouth one time. I don't have to keep going and keep going and keep going to wake up. I can wake up because I can recognize that I've gotten loud one time. Okay. The next step then is to learn to recognize that I don't have to even open my mouth. I can recognize that the next thing that I'm about to say is going to be angry words. Let me catch it then. And that would be the one then that's the non-returner. He does not open his mouth and start doing it. Okay. Yeah. This is actually going in the direction now of learning when to shut our yap, when to be quiet, when to shut up. Okay, and that we can practice that in both ways in the sense of shutting up when we're in a situation with other people. But we can also bring that as a skill to learn to shut up. When uh, uh, when we have fallen down instead of arguing with ourselves or fighting with ourselves or you shouldn't have fallen down or all of that kind of stuff, we can wake up and says, hey, I can get up. I can get out of this. I don't have to do it like that. Okay, and eventually you're saying that's exactly what happened. The the problem is, is when the dip came, also the sleep was almost as if we um, 
wallow in our own momentary self-pity. Yeah. But if we can, if we're quick, we can get ourselves up. And if we're really quick, we just readjust our posture so that we actually don't fall over. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way of looking at it is, is that how quick is your sati? How quick can we wake up? Yeah. And even though, just, yeah. Go ahead. Well, on like any given day, I'll be doing fine, whatever, and then I'll get disturbed by whatever. And it'll feel like, oh, I failed. Like, I'm not being mindful. I've let it, I've let it get to me. I've forgotten. I'm just, I'm just kind of escaping into thought, into thoughts and, uh, and kind of like escaping reality and not, and not like centering myself basically. But if you look at it across time, like it's slowly improving. Like if I were to look at myself three months ago, it's like much better than then. Mm, precisely. And so those are the right kind of thoughts to have yeah. rather than, oh no, I screwed up again. Uh, yeah, this this is very, very well known among those who have been teaching the Dhamma. Uh, Gawanka first mentioned it in the way that I began to understand with his little phrase, when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. Because, in fact, we don't. When the mind wanders away from the breath, we kick and punch ourselves. Yeah. When the mind wanders away from the breath, not only do we lay in the uh, in the road dirty, we wallow in it. Yeah. Okay. About about like uh, I don't know how long ago, like three weeks ago maybe, but I had this realization. Like I kept doing that. I would like fail to be mindful of like my whatever of the moment or whatever, you know, try to practice. And every time I failed, I would be like I would get filled with negativity and like ah oh, like. And then eventually I realized, like, the beauty of this is I have infinite tries. You can always start again. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's like you never fail. You can always start over. Every You're always at a new start. You have, infin you have infinite tries. That was like the realization I have. You have infinite right. tries, you know? Well, I have a different definition of infinite because I've studied mathematics. Yeah. No such okay. thing as infinite. What we do have is just every moment is a new opportunity. Yeah, yeah. You won't have that forever. It's not a forever thing. There's no such things as forevers. Yeah, that's not the right way of saying it. I have my whole life to just keep trying. Right. Or so, do you at least have this new moment. Yeah, yeah. This new moment. This moment. Yeah. This yeah, one, yeah. This one. Right. That's, that's the way all, of that's looking all at it. Hey, I can wake up now. I don't have to wallow and be failing bad for five minutes and then wake up. I can wake up now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 that that uh sort of realization like sort of took the pressure off, but at the same time made it like improve me. Like realizing there's no pressure is like a is like a benefit. Mm-hmm. You know. Yes. It's no pressure. Whole... Never try never mind. Try again. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> so you use that word pressure, recognizing that we are taught to pressurize ourselves. Yeah. 
We are taught to be critical of ourselves. That you're not good enough, you got to do better. Rather than recognizing that um, that in fact, we can look at it in the sense of playing a game or a sport. When the kids are just out playing, um, there's there's no problem. But when you put on a uniform and play as a sports team, now the score matters, right? Why does it matter? It actually doesn't, but it but the people are taught that the score matters. And so we wind up trying to keep score on ourselves rather than living in the present moment. That's the thing is, is that you can keep, you can stop keeping score. Or another word to use is stop being critical of yourself when you fail and nurture yourself instead. Yeah. Oh, oh, this is nothing to it. Oh, I can get over this. This is no big deal. In other words, we begin to intentionally think about our problems as being small and easier to take care of rather than big and difficult. Yeah. That we intentionally, ignorantly make our lives hard. We make them difficult and we use words like hard. Here's a, a, a very, very easy example to see. We don't talk about it like employment. Oh, I'm going to the employer's office today. We don't say that. What do we do? We say, I'm going to work. Right. Right. Yet most jobs in the West nowadays is not work. It's not physical labor. No, it's not. There are very, very few really uh, labor intensive jobs that um, uh, things are being replaced by a machine. Um, When my dad laid pipe, he had a new machine to cut that trench, but he still used the shovel. Yeah. My dad used the shovel. My dad fixed pipe, which means he had to turn great big things like this. This is called a blue collar job. Okay, and that that mentality of that that life is hard work, life is not easy, is a mentality that was given to him by the employer. Oh, you're supposed to work. That he passed that down to me, and I kind of rejected it. In the sense of, no, I'm not going to go work. I'm going to go find something to do where I can take it easy. That's why I've been a monk for many years. <laughs> why bother to work? Why dig in the dirt? Why, why, why cut, why cut down trees? Why do that kind of stuff? Okay. So, um, when we recognize that the reason that we do that kind of stuff is because of the mentality that we have. Rather than recognizing that every time I fall down, it's just a new opportunity for me to have fun of getting back up again. Let me see how flamboyant or beautiful I can make my standing up, my arisal, you know, 
why do I have to think that it's bad that I felt down when in fact it's really good? I've got a new opportunity to stand back up again. Yeah, and maybe the fact that you've been hurt or you've you've been set back, that'll in the big picture make you better because you're becoming more skilled at dealing with adversity. You're learning new information. Mm -hmm. You know exactly. We're learning how to stand. We're learning how to get back up when we fall down, just like the uh, the toddler learns to stand by learning to kind of do a little dance with his feet to get him repositioned to get his balance. And if we don't learn to do that, we keep falling down, sometimes big time. Okay, so learning to stand up and learning to get our balance is what the teaching of the Buddha is all about. In the sense of coming out of those negative thoughts and coming back into wholesome thoughts. And it's very, very funny that as soon as we go into a wholesome, an unwholesome thought, then when we catch that unwholesome thought, we will catch it unwholesomely. Yeah. We'll catch that unwholesome thought unwholesomely in the sense of, oh, you should not be doing that. Oh, you're not getting anything out of your practice. Oh, you're no good. I thought I was doing great and then I fell down again and now I'm not feeling so great. Rather than, oh, I felt great because I didn't fall down. Why don't I get back up then and feel great again? But no, when and this happens not just with brand new beginners, it happens with people on and on and on into their practice until they recognize that that first thought about waking up. That like Oenka says, never mind, start again. When the mind wanders away means that you've recognized that the mind has wandered away. Just come back to the breath. Just come back. Yeah. Rather than as it goes down into that pit. So another analogy that we can use is about about waking up is actually waking up in the morning. What's the very first thing that you do when you wake up? What's the very first thing you do? We're talking about within the first two to three to five seconds. What's the first thing that happens? Uh, you open your eyes. Uh, sometimes that happens, okay. That would the the eyes would open, in fact, if someone shines a light in your face. Right. Okay. Yeah. Or uh, you might jump straight out of bed if you hear a loud noise. Yeah. Okay. Like a bomb goes off or lightning strikes right next to the house with a great big thump. So what actually is happening then? is is that we come into sensory awareness we become conscious we actually wake up a little bit in other words the first thing that happens when you wake up in the morning is you become aware that you've just woken up okay that's what i was thinking you regain consciousness yeah we regain consciousness precisely yeah yeah right okay that's the first thing that happens but it is not enough. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that what really is waking up is when we get out of bed. 
Sure. Okay, so now I'm using this analogy. Imagine it's boot camp. Yeah. And that it's it's five minutes to six o'clock in the morning when Brevely happens, and the drill instructor comes in with his big baton and starts banging the thing around and banging beds and says, all hands on deck or get up or whatever the uh, military he's in. <laughs> and what happens? Do you lay there in bed or do you actually get up out of bed? You get up, you make your bed. You get, get up out of bed immediately. He's woken you up. You've heard his baton. You've heard his noise and you get up immediately. Yeah. Right? Okay. Come make to attention. Right. <laughs> so that's a good analogy now because what you, we've done normally is because the DI instructor is not coming in when we wake up uh, in our, let us say, meditation, that we will lay in the position or in the bed that we were laying in rather than getting up and getting out of it. In other words, the unwholesome thought, when we wake up to the unwholesome thought, we will lay in that unwholesome thought. We'll lay in bed. We don't get up and get out of it. Okay. Yeah. But when we recognize that laying in that uh, and wallowing in that self-pity, when we've fallen down, we stay falling down. When we recognize that that's dangerous, we'll get right back up. Yeah. That's what we need to talk about today is how can we make that second kind of waking up, the strong waking up, rather than the weak waking up. Because if the sati is weak, then it will take a lot of effort. But if the sati is really strong, then there's very little effort to it. In other words, it may take more effort for the, um, the college student who just wakes up and he's going to have to go to class and he knows about it like that versus the same dude that's now in the army and the and that baton crack comes and he's he's up. Yeah. All right. We yeah. begin to change our attitude about, oh, poor me, I want to lay here in bed. Oh, I don't want to go to class into up two, three, four that we can do it. We can take that effort because the waking up is strong. Yeah. All right. Let me give you another analogy. But then and that uh, is a wait, wait, but can we stay with that analogy just for a second? All right. By that analogy, a developed practitioner wants to be up and at him. If, if you got a, even if you're if you got a drill instructor or if you, you if you got just a class in the morning, regardless, you want to be up. You mm -hmm. never want to just like lie there. You exactly. want to practice getting up immediately. Want to no practice problem. getting up. Exactly. Right That's up. what we're talking about. To practice getting up. No matter no matter what wakes you, no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. Anything. If we're saying anything that wakes you with some sort of unwholesome thought, you know, right. Degrees, so if you're already you up, yeah. If you're already up, then how can you practice getting up? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what we're looking at. Is is that the practice is the practice of getting up, yeah. waking up, and getting up. Yeah. And once okay. you're standing up, maybe you can perk up a little. That's exactly right. That's exactly it. And so the next analogy that I was about to give is imagine that the mom has gone into the kitchen and there is a whole pile of trash in there. 
and the family has decided that the teenage son is the one who's supposed to take out the garbage, house rules or whatever. And so mom calls her son and he comes in and she says, you got to take the garbage out. So he picks up the garbage and he takes it out to the road. He's doing what he was told to do. Now, the next day, he walks into the kitchen before mom gets home and he sees all that garbage and he says, hey, mom's going to be really happy if she sees this garbage already taken out. And so he takes it up and he takes it out to the road and he's very pleased with himself. Now, the question is, which one of these took the most effort? Did it take more effort for him to take the trash out when he was told to do it? Or did he take, was it uh, more effort to take the trash out when he recognized that that was his job to do. Uh, when he was told, right? When he was told it was a lot of effort. That's right. It was. It was work. He was doing what he was told to do. He didn't right. like doing it. But the second time he did it, he was happy to do it. He wanted to do it. Because he felt it was his job. Because he was now waking up to, oh, it's my job to take out the trash. Yeah, and he wants to do his job. And he wants to do his job. He wants yeah. to do his duty to the Dhamma. Yeah, okay. And in this case, taking out the trash. That's a, okay. So now we're beginning to put all these analogies together to recognize that we have a duty to wake up and come out of our dukkha. Yeah. Yeah, it's not something, uh, it's not like you have to run on the treadmill or else you're going to get obese or whatever. Or you have to eat your vegetables or someone's forcing you to do some of those things. It's, I want to do this. Yeah, I want to do it. Mm -hmm. Every part of me wants me wants to do it. That's like the right attitude. Right, exactly. Not only do I want to do it, but I know that I can do it. And why do I want to do it? Because I know it's, it's a good approach from my own experience. Mm -hmm. It I is a healthy, more more. wholesome thing to do. Yeah. But laying there in the road getting dirty is a dangerous thing to do. Yeah. You're going to get run over. You're going to get walked on. Yeah. Okay. So basically, we're also talking about the issue of the distinction between having a victim's mentality and a winner's mentality. Yeah. The winner is just going to pick himself up when he falls down. The loser is going to feel bad. Oh, look at me. I've lost again. I'm no good. This is hard. And what I'm what I'm talking about here is this is merely a change of attitude. And when we change our attitude a lot, we become absolutely enthusiastic for the Dhamma. We keep looking for the Dhamma. We keep seeing the Dhamma. We nourish ourselves with the Dhamma. We become really eager, enthusiastic. Yeah. Okay. That's the whole point, which would be then the way that the drill instructor wants the uh, uh, the recruit is to be enthusiastic about his training. Yeah. Okay, to instill into the student, you can do this. Get up off your ass and go, you know, and yeah. the guy gets up off and he goes. All right. And so he's learning something. Yeah. Now, I would not say that military training is the best wholesome thing for a student to do, but many, many benefit from it. Sure. But they would benefit even more if they had that attitude about the Dhamma, to get up and get it done. 
yeah, I maybe, can do this. If you don't know this teaching, joining the military will indirectly or directly kind of help you form similar, reach a similar conclusion, but maybe it's not so skillful as just attacking the problem direct, directly, regardless of what you're doing, regardless if you're uh, lifting logs or learning to shoot rifles, you know. It has to do with your enthusiasm. If you're not enthusiastic about doing it, it's going to be too much work. Yeah, regardless of the situation. Mm -hmm. so regardless of the situation, exactly. Yeah, so it's not like going to military and doing something really like physically difficult is going to like make you better necessarily. I mean, it's going to make you good at doing that thing. Like it's going to make you good at being in the military. Mm -hmm. That's a different skill set, though. But if it builds confidence, yeah, then the student will be much better off because he knows he's got the can-do attitude. Yeah, that's and why a lot can of people. Do this. Yeah, yeah. In a lot of ways, the military is similar. I mean, like, there's a lot of this kind of like, like uh, in the Navy, they say embrace the suck. That's what they say in training week. Embrace what? The suck. Like, oh. This sucks so bad. Oh, got it. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. That's one of their catchphrases. Yeah, Precisely yeah. Precisely so. That's, this that's is pretty what similar. We're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that you can handle this. Yeah, we're going to make things suck to prove to you that you can handle how much stuff sucks and you yeah, can and, still be okay. And change your attitude and get through and it. Change. Mm -hmm. And strengthen your attitude over time, over and over. Yeah, over and over and over again to strengthen that attitude because we were uh, taught from childhood as well as the reality is that a newborn infant is dependent upon other people. We can't feed ourselves. We can't clothe ourselves. We can't walk. We can't do anything. And so the victim's mentality of uh, sets in very early for the infant. Yeah. Okay, that we are dependent, and if the child is not getting fed and not getting taken care of, then he will do, develop a uh, 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 an abandonment complex. He feels like that he can't live without this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. But this military training is teaching them that they can do. Yeah. That they that it does suck. Yeah, and you can handle the suck. Yeah, you can embrace that. You can do it. You can pick yourself up and dust yourself off and boogie on down the road. Yeah, maybe the the criticism might some people might have about the military is uh, a lot of people might go through it and not learn, never, never transcend the attitude of, oh, this person's telling me to do this and that's why I'm doing it. Like many, many <laughs> do learn. I'm doing this for myself. I'm doing this to become stronger. I can't well, many, do this. many, many would just go through it like uh, as as a as a as a uh, someone who's taking orders, you know, like I'm just doing this because mm -hmm. I'm told to do it and it sucks. Yes, that's what? a criticism, because if you go through the military, you're just uh, you might just go through it like you never you never learn to, to do things outside of being told to do it, you know, so maybe that's one problem with it. That's one problem people might have with it, you know. I don't want to criticize uh -huh. anything. You, you know that many, many people will consider and call a meditation retreat a kind of a boot camp. Yeah, like a Goenka retreat. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Why do we have the mentality that it's a boot camp? The mentality that it's a boot camp to a winner says, yeah, I can do boot camps. I've been doing boot camps. I'm the drill instructor. I can do boot camps. I do one every six weeks with a whole group of new students. Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So when we as ordinary people go to a retreat, Guess what? The reality is, is that instead of up two, three, four push-ups and, and marching with heavy packs all day, you're given to absolutely nothing to do. Which kind of retreat are we talking about, though? All of them. The Goenka retreats. How many people are cutting down logs and, and uh, uh, operating heavy equipment during the retreat? Nobody. Yeah, you, you just have to sit there for like two or more hours. You and just, just have uh, to sit there, right, yeah, with yeah, nothing yeah. to do. Yeah. Except yeah, yeah. to deal with one's own mind, which is the mind of a victim. Yeah. That, in fact, some people may get more out of a boot camp than they will out of a 10-day retreat. You mean a military boot camp? A military boot camp can sometimes, for some people, give more valuable stuff to them, like the attitude that they can do it. Sure. Because most people come out of a retreat with, wow, I'm glad that's over. But wouldn't you say if you go to like a Goenka, like I've seen videos of people just getting out of it and they're like, wow, I'm so proud of myself. That kind of took mental fortitude to sit there so still for so many hours every day. Someone mm -hmm. with a weak mind couldn't do this. So it's kind of the same thing, right? Precisely. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But during the retreat, look how many of them are poor me. I wish I could leave. That in yeah. fact, many of the retreats that I know of, they gauge their, their success by how many people stay versus how many people leave. If people leave early in the retreat, then it's considered a failure for those people who left. Well, yeah. And a lot of people leave. A lot of people leave. A lot, a lot of people leave. Why? Because they can and they don't like. It's like a boot camp for them. But, but in fact, the reality is, is that they don't have anything to do. Yeah. <laughs> There's really nothing to do. And they don't even. But uh, at the, at uh, they. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they don't have but, anything uh, to do. They sit there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. They, but it's still challenging. It's challenging to do that for people. Why? Because because uh, like our minds are just full of thoughts and we're like have the habit of we just can't sit there still without freaking out, I guess. OK, so if we are um, uh, on a long haul with 50 pounds of luggage on our back or maybe we're climbing some rope or uh, doing push ups, all of that physical labor that we're doing takes blood away from the brain and we're not thinking so much but when you're just sitting still with no place to go um all of the old thoughts and old habits come back yeah. so in fact in some cases the uh, uh boot camp is going to be more wholesome than the meditation retreat because the students are not following the directions you see, in almost every art, a martial art, golfing, any of them, the teacher can come and make an adjustment. Here, hold your hands this way. Here, do the fingering on the piano like this. 
here, hold your hand and twist it as you're putting your fist into the guy's eye. You can't just push him straight. You got to punch and twist as it's going. You really want to do your damage, okay? And so, exactly. All of this kind of stuff is what we can do when we've got a good teacher who can watch what we're doing. Unfortunately, in a retreat, the teacher can he can't see what you're thinking. <laughs> yeah. You're going to have to do this yourself. You're going to have to remember to pick yourself up Dust yourself off and start again. Yeah. To get that attitude. I can do this. I can do this. And I every student that I've had has this issue. Yeah. And so that's why I'm talking to you today about it the way that we are is to give you that attitude that you could do this. Yeah. That when you slump down, you can say, hey, I can remember to pick myself up, dust myself off, get out of my rack, stand at attention perform my duty and and love it <laughs> yeah 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 as opposed to oh poor me i fell down again i'll never be i was doing great for a long time i was just up two three four and everything and now i've fallen down again poor me yeah and someone with that attitude is going to be fine in a boot camp or in a goenka retreat whatever hmm it's going to be beneficial to them to regardless of the situation if they have that attitude right and so that's part of the development that is the the um the teaching of the eightfold noble path yeah in sutta number 117 is very clear about this that this is all about a change of attitude yeah. that we wake up we make a change, we see what we're doing, and we make a change, and we do those three things over and over again. We wake up, take a look at what we're doing, making a change. And every time that we do that, we eventually get pretty good at it. And now we begin to change our attitude before it was hard. Now I can do it. Now it's easy enough. Just like the boy who took the garbage out on his own, it was a whole lot less work than doing it when he was told to do it. Okay, so this is the whole point then is, is that um, the Sama Sankapa attitude is going to help the effort. That when it's hard work, that means there's a lot of effort to it. But when we enjoy it, we're enthusiastic about it, then there's not much effort to it. Is easy enough to do. I can do this. It's a mental attitude. Yeah. And we need to develop that mental attitude. And when do we need to develop it the most? Is when we don't have it right then and there. Oh, I've fallen down or poor me. That's the time to wake up. Yeah. When the mind wanders away from the breath, wake up right then and say, hey, back to it. Up two, three, four. Get this thing done. We're back on it. Okay. That's the training, is the training of an attitude to keep practicing and the effort gets easy. In fact, it not only gets easy, it gets downright energetic because we're enthusiastic about, aha, I caught it again. <laughs> and so this is the way of practice, is to get that attitude. I can do this.
but we can't get that attitude without the success of actually doing it over and over and over again. And as we do it over and over again, we gain confidence that we could do it. Yeah, you reinforce, keep reinforcing confidence. Mm -hmm. Reinforcing the confidence. So Daniel, I give you confidence. You could do it. And then uh, I was like wondering regarding the the breath, like is is noticing the breath in and of itself useful, or is that really just about being in the moment and being aware of everything that's going on in the moment? Well, the breath can be used as an anchor for helping us get into the present moment because when we are watching the breath, when we remember to take a long, deep in breath. That's sati right here, right now, to remember to take a long, deep breath, and then to remember to take a long, deep out breath. So sati on the in-breath, sati on the out-breath, sati on the in-breath, I can do this, sati on the out-breath. Oh, wow, that feels so good. Yeah. Okay, so we bring the breath into it as an anchor to help us be in the present moment. Yeah. Also, we use the breath as a doorway into understanding the body, that we actually start looking at the body's breathing, just like in the Goenka retreat, with one more point. And that is, is that the point about paying attention to the body and getting in touch with the breathing is so that we can relax the body that we begin to feel the tension. A lot of students right from the very beginning, oh, I feel so tense and uptight when I'm meditating. The answer to that is you've had that tension and uptightness before and you weren't watching. You didn't notice it. Now that you're paying attention to the body, you're beginning to pay attention to your feelings also. Yeah. Okay. And so getting in touch with the body will help find where all the tensions are. Yeah. So that we can relax the neck if there's tensions in the neck. We can relax the head if there's uh, uh, a headache or tensions in the head. That people don't recognize that so much of the, uh, you, you've heard the term psychosomatic. Right, psychosomatic, mind-body. The relationship between the mind and the body. This is what the Buddha is coming to, is let's use the breath as the doorway into the body so that we can see how our attitudes affect the body and how our body affects the attitudes that they work back and forth. That when we're sick physically, we begin to get sick mentally also. Yeah. But we don't have to be. We can say, well, I'm so glad I'm sick. I don't have to go to work. I can just lay here and let the body heal itself. Yeah. Instead of, oh no, I'm sick. I should not be sick. And so that's another way of, of uh, gaining this confidence is it is OK for the body to be the way that it is. My job is merely to watch it, to nourish it, to take care of it. And then we can do that with not just the body, but with the mind and then the feelings. Yeah. So that we stop being critical of the body, we stop being critical of the mind, we stop being critical of our feelings and start to be nurturing instead. He's, you're all right. You're okay. Just chill out a bit is all we need to do. Just chill, baby, chill. 
So that's the kind of nurturing words that we can have. No place to go, nothing to do, nothing to dangerous. Everything is okay. And so we continue with those wholesome nourishing thoughts. And eventually the body and the mind, especially the feeling part of the mind and body, settle down. The anxiety will drain away. But it wouldn't have if, had, if we hadn't noticed it and taken yeah. care of it. Yeah. Yeah. So you can see how all of this stuff fits together. The dog that's tied to the tree can't learn anything. Yeah. Right. This is the whole thing about uh, boot camp, about getting up, coming to it. Yeah. Having having the right attitude. This is the whole teaching. That's what uh, boot camp is. Uh, 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 that's what they want is to get your attitude from I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know what's going on and I can't handle myself. I'm just a poor brat from the jungle into got it, boys. You know, I'm on it. Semper Fi. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. OK, so that's that part of it is there with the Dhamma, except that in the Dhamma, everything is wholesome. In military. A lot of stuff is not wholesome, but if you don't have that can-do attitude, you can't win any battle, whether it's a Dhamma battle or a real battle. Yeah. It's all about your attitude. So, uh, can we talk about how you distinguish wholesome versus unwholesome? Uh, well, not liking is unwholesome. Being okay with things is hopeful. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. That's enough right there. You're okay with it. It's all right. Yeah. Critical is unwholesome. Nurturing is wholesome. Mm. Okay. Finding fault with things is unwholesome. Finding the value in things is wholesome. Yeah. 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 Easy enough. Really and it's all uh, about attitude. So an unwholesome attitude would be, I can't do it. It's too much work. I'm sorry. All of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And in fact, uh, when we have done something wrong, our system, our society requires you to feel sorry. We even say, I'm sorry. We're supposed to say I'm sorry. Okay. Why is that? Well, here's the, the point is, is that if you are uh, um, around a very big, powerful person, a boss or whatever like that, that's got control over you and you know that, then you want to suck up to him and say you're sorry so that he'll have compassion upon you. I mean, Allah, we want mercy from Allah, not justice. Yeah, we, we we want grace from God, not punishment. OK, and so this whole idea of if I'm sorry, then I'll get forgiveness. So uh, it's, uh, it's also OK to give an apology without being sorry. Yeah, it's a tool. Yeah, I can apologize. 
It's okay with me. I recognize that I have done wrong and I will do what I need to fix it up, but I'm not about to feel sorry for what I've done. Yeah. I was talking about that with my dad the other day. I was saying people conflate guilt and uh, the nasty feeling that people usually get when they feel guilt because basically people conflate recognizing a flaw a flaw or some way that they can like improve or could have changed something that would probably be better and they conflate that and like feeling really bad inside like mm -hmm. they have to be the same thing but it's like it's never productive to feel really bad inside but it is good to to reflect and and maybe improve things you can separate them right and it's all about the attitude here yeah if we feel sorry and depressed, oh, I've screwed up, oh, poor me, I'm a bad person, is a completely different attitude than the attitude of, hey, I screwed up, and I can see that, and I'll fix it. Yeah. I can get back up, I can dust myself off, and I can boogie on down the road. And That's no it. In, no use in feeling bad about it. Right. There's no use to feel bad about it because feeling bad about it is the time wasted when you could have been feeling good about fixing it rather than feeling bad about screwing up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another like, just get on it. What Let's get do? it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So when those moments come when you want to feel sorry for yourself, having a pity party or that's the time to see that drill instructor walking in they, that di with his baton wakey wakey <laughs> yeah except not wakey wakey oh man i have to do boot camp now wakey wakey i'm gonna feel yes, good sir. i can do this i got it i'm feeling yes great. sir yeah i feel great about it uh-huh yeah 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 yeah, I find myself at like work saying I'm sorry a lot. Like out of habit, like, oh, I'm sorry, made a mistake. I'm sorry. You know, mm -hmm. everybody, everybody. It's really, it's really uh, like when you say I'm sorry, a lot of people, like I said earlier, tend to associate some negative feeling with it. But it's m more just like, oh, I recognize the uh, error. Like I, I'm, it's basically just an acknowledgement is all it should be exactly acknowledgement of of uh, uh doing wrong so that we can fix it yeah as opposed to acknowledgement that i've done wrong so that i can get punished for what i've done wrong one's a rehabilitation the other one is a punishment yeah and the punishment is feeling bad and the rehabilitation is feeling great about it yeah <laughs> being feeling great about screwing up and catching it and fixing it Got yeah. it that time. Oh, I got you. <laughs> yeah. That's the enthusiasm that we're looking for. The enthusiasm for the Dhamma. Yeah. Rather than all oh, poor me, I screwed up again. Because that's the that's the way that we are taught. And as you can tell from the Goanka, that's one of the first trainings that Goanka is trying to give the students is never mind. The pity party, never mind the feeling sad and sorry for yourself. Get up and start again. Yeah. 
Never mind. Start again. So that's what we do when we get into that state is wake up quickly and say, hey, I caught you. I caught that pity party. I caught that low spot. I could see it. But uh, yeah, I keep thinking like uh, with, with uh, Ahasi and Gwenka and all that. How are they incorporating these teachings, or how how are they supposing that what they teach is connected to like Dhamma? You know. Well. Actually, they have a lot of Dhamma in it. It's just missing a few key ingredients. This whole point about changing one's attitude is built into the Anapanasati Sutta as well as the other teachings of the Buddha, but I suspect that a lot has to do with instead of taking and keeping with the Eightfold Noble Path and practicing that, instead they go off into very technical literature like the Satipatthana Sutta, and then they fail to uh, get this issue. I mean, what we're talking about here is the hindrances. Yeah, and the hindrances are all over the sutras, and yet the uh, Goenka method, and especially the Mahasi method, does not emphasize come out of those hindrances, come out of that state, that state of being sorry, that state of wanting something that we don't have, that state of being disgusted, to come out of these hindrances, and this is not emphasized enough. Yeah. For the Westerner, because we're really stuck in these hindrances. Yeah, like when I first learned about Mahasi, I'm thinking like, oh, like if I if I just focus on my sensations and like objectify my my conscious field or whatever, or like, you know, my like my uh, all my sensations, I'll like achieve like I'll like attain to meditative states or something. It feels like it feels like some sort of program like. Uh, mm -hmm like a paint by numbers kit or like a workout program or something. But now I sort of practice ma ma like a, like a modified Mahasi where it's like, I do objectify my sensations. I try to be very aware of everything, but it's in a very wholesome way because I'm gladdening myself to like, what is, mm -hmm. you know? Yes. I'm happy with whatever's happening and I'm very aware of it. So in that sense, I'm practicing Mahasi. I'm noting all the senses, but it's like, I'm gladdening myself to it. And like I'm becoming right. happier. Yeah. Right. So and, if they taught it that and, way, I think it would be good. Well, um, there was uh, one interview that I had with uh, Dan Ingram to where Dan was reading this out of Mahasi's work. Yeah. The problem is, is that it's not emphasized enough. And it's almost like later literature. Another example with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is, is that he's got at least four different books, full books on Anapanasati. And in one of my favorite uh, versions of it, he talks of um, it in order of the occurrence that it happens in the um, suttas in the sense of everybody thinks about, you know, you go to first grade and you learn what's in first grade, and then you go to second grade and you learn what's in second grade and you learn, go to third grade, et cetera, like that. And that the Mahasi method is the first grade over and over and over and over and over again. 
Okay, that's the problem with it. This is always for the beginners. So that's one of the points about it. But Bhikkhu Buddhadasa in this book, talking about gladdening the mind, he says, and this is page 218 on this particular book, when he says, this is the first thing that you've got to do. Most people have been practicing for weeks and never even gotten to page 218 yet. Yeah. So that's it's a way it has a way to do with the way that it's taught, the order in which things are taught. Uddhasa directly addresses Mahasi. No, he directly addresses uh, Armapanasati. Okay, okay. I thought I wasn't sure if you were saying he like made he wrote something about him. No, no, okay, he's okay. directly talking about gladdening the mind is the first thing that you've got to do. Yeah. It's one of the first things that you've got to do to wake up, look at what you're doing, gladden the mind, and congratulate yourself for gladdening the mind. And this is the basic practice, and we need to practice that over and over and over again. But many students never find out about it. All they have is the sati to wake up and do the investigation. They don't get to the change part. They're practicing two steps out of the Eightfold Noble Path. And that's why it's hard, is because they don't make the change. They can recognize they're in misery, but they don't recognize that they can change it. Right. They're, mind, they're being mindful, they're investigating their sensations, and then mm -hmm. they're just sitting there, and they're just doing that over and over. And they're doing that over and over. One, two, one, two, one, two, when in fact it's a up, two, three, four. Up two, three, four, up two, three, four, not one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. That's the problem. Is it don't practice all that we need to do? Yeah. To make that change is the big one. We have to make that change from the unwholesome to the wholesome. Yeah. And so it's really just about remembering, right? That's mm -hmm. a huge part of it. That's the huge part of it. That's the hup. <laughs> Get up. Yeah. Wakey, wakey. That's it. Memory. Right. That's mm -hmm. to remember to look at what's going on and to make a change. And the and the making the change is what's missing in the Mahasi method. Yeah, they're just saying, look at the senses, look at the senses. Right, just wake up and look, wake up and look, wake up and look. And we're saying, wake up, look, and make a change. Yeah. Get up out of that rack that you're laying in. Don't just inspect the rack that you're laying in. Get out. <laughs> Get up. <laughs> Instead of laying there in the road after you've fallen down and inspect the dirt, Get up, <laughs> make a change, recognize that you are in the dirt and get out of it. That's what's missing in the Mahasi, but it's not missing in the Mahasi Sabada from Burma. He's got it. Yeah, what, he's definitely where, got it. It's, yeah. where it's missing is when it came to the West. Yeah. Yeah, Mahasi Sayadaw, or the, whatever the original Mahasi was, he knew what he was talking about. He knew what he was talking about. Exactly. He died in the 1960s, though. Actually, I think it was 82. Okay. Right. 
That's the problem is, is that what he was teaching did not get properly transmitted into the Mahasi that's common in the West. Gawanka missed that also. He was in India, uh, he was in Burma and he missed that point. He didn't get that far. But uh, I guess like, or my theory with like, uh... Goenka is like, you'll just sit there and you'll just attempt that so hard. Like, you'll just be so uh, convinced of like whatever you're going to get, you think you're going to get out of doing that, right? And then you just keep doing it and doing it until you're like, man, I got to like be able to enjoy this. And then, then you're accidentally stumbling upon the third and fourth step, basically. And they're not really telling you to do that, but it's happening if you, if anyway, you like, bang exactly. Well enough. If you bang this your head is in fact, yeah, exactly. The, you've heard of the 16 stages of insight. Yeah, from Dan Ingram. Right. OK, that that's the... step 11. That's it. Step 11 of the 16 stages of insight is the redoubling of the effort mm -hmm. to do something about it. Yeah. OK. So all of that early stuff about watching disillusion and seeing the mind and all of that, it then leads into step six, starting with fearfulness, misery, disgust, despair, and a strong desire to get out. Well, we started with a strong desire to get out. That's why we came to the Buddha anyway. So why don't we just start at step number 10 and go to 11, which is now the redoubling of the effort, and go immediately into the Eightfold Noble Path, step 12, the Four yeah. Noble Truths. Yeah. Right. So in a, in a way, you could say that the 16 stages of insight that the Mahasi method and uh, comes out of uh, the Pitisabhiti Magga and also the Vasudhi Magga, that's the, that's the incorrect practice for slow, difficult results. To where the quick, easy results is change right away. Yeah. Yeah, make a change right away. Change that attitude from difficult into I got it. Yeah. Yeah. And that is basically the uh, mechanics of like all meditation practices, techniques. It's actually the mechanics of all skills. Uh, yeah. It's the mechanics of all skills. Music, martial arts, Zen and the art of archery, doesn't matter what skill you're learning. You got to come out of the loser's beginner mentality into, I could do this. Keep trying. Keep doing it. Keep experimenting. Keep practicing over and over again. And then see the results for what they are and build upon that. And that's true in everything. I used with you the example of the drill instructor, but it's in everything. Yeah. But a lot of the stuff in the world is is <clears throat> got wholesome and unwholesome stuff mixed with it. Here with the Dhamma, we're working truly with just the wholesome. Working just with the mind. Yeah. You get the mind straight. So not only do you get it straight with the drill instructor and straight with your music, you get it straight with everything. Yeah. 
because it's all about attitude. Everything is about an attitude. What's your attitude about this? That's it. What do you think is like the difference between uh, like suppressing thoughts? I don't think you can do it. You don't think you can do it, right? Yeah. I don't think you can suppress thoughts. A thought happens and then another thought happens. And then another thought happens. We know like the like the earliest and pretty much everybody who because I live in California. So like everybody knows like, oh, yeah, meditation, you know. And if you ask the average person, they'll tell you, oh, yeah, like I tried it one time. I just tried sitting there for 10 or 20 minutes and tried not to think about anything. And that was kind of like what I thought it was at the beginning, too, just like anybody. But really, if you're trying to, like, manually stop thoughts, what you're really doing, or what at least I find myself doing, or have found myself doing, is, like, you think you're stopping the thought, but really you're just thinking about stopping thoughts, which is just another thought. What's the difference between a wild stallion and a beautifully high-stepping show horse? Training. Training, precisely. Okay, and so here you have that stallion, that untrained wild horse sitting down for meditation, and you think that he's high-stepping? Nope, not a chance. So think about it like this, that we have to treat the mind like that wild horse. And first off, the first thing we do is put it into a corral, put it into a pasture. So long as the horse could just run wherever he wants to, it will continue to run. So uh, one of the ways that they used to catch wild horses is by getting them into a box canyon. In other words, the hill is like this, and so if they can get them into the canyon, then they can wall it off, fence it off to keep the horses from getting out. And the horses are going to be wild inside of there, but eventually you'll take them and put them into a fenced area, a pasture, and then after that into a corral. And then later into a stall. Once the horse is in a stall, he can't move much of any place. So we're going to actually practice that with the mind also. And the first fencing that we build is the fencing of wholesome thoughts. Don't let the mind wander anywhere. Keep it in the wholesome. And then we can bring it down to a very small wholesome, like just a song or just a chant. Ipitiso Bhagawa, over and over and over again. And then we can bring it down to the stall would be like a mantra. Who on the end breath, do on the out breath. So now we've gotten the mind down to just two thoughts, boo, do. It's a whole lot easier to get the mind to stop when it's only got two thoughts, boo and do, than it is where it's already just running all over the place. So, of course, somebody who's never meditated is going to sit down thinking they're supposed to stop the mind and they think they're going to do it in 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, especially if they don't even get a corral. They don't even have a corral. Perhaps if they would sit down with a mantra, they would recognize what a monkey wild horse mind they've got. Yeah. 
that was one of the earliest types I tried. I played around with was like transcendental meditation. Mm hmm. With a mantra, it has a lot of value when it's done correctly. But we don't really want to use the, the mantra until after we've gotten the mind really, really settled down. And the way to do that in the beginning is by getting it into just wholesome thoughts. Yeah. Just into wholesome thoughts and then get it into a smaller package and then down to a mantra and then you can get the mind to stop. You can get into second Johnny. It can be done, but it's it a sequence. Yeah, it, yeah. Can, it is. It, it can be done. But we have to do it with the right tools. It's almost like somebody can uh, jerk 200 kilograms. It can be done. Yeah. But you don't start with 200 kilograms trying to jerk it. Yeah. You start with five kilograms. Over yeah. and over and over and over and over again with those reps. Yeah. So learning to lift weights in the gym is exactly the same practice as learning to uh, practice a meditation with the mind. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, I guess, uh, except in the gym, all you get is muscles. Right, right. With, with the practice of Adapanasati, what you get is a wonderful life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess connecting... Sorry, go ahead. It's just, it's the same thing. Repeating, playing music over and over again. If you keep doing it over and over again, you'll gain the skill of music, and now you can play music. What we're learning to do is to have a, a, a music-filled life, the music of life itself. Learning to play a beautiful tune. Yeah. This present moment. So that's it. It's all the same thing. But here we're gladdening the mind. That's getting the technique down of gladdening the mind, of learning to control the mind. Gladdening the mind is practicing learning to control. It is possible to stop thought, right? It is possible, sure. And the way to do that is if, uh, if, if do you think that it's possible to have wholesome thoughts? Yeah. Do you think it's possible to have one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought? If you practiced enough. Yeah. If you practice enough, okay. So if you can have one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought, then it's possible maybe that you can put a gap between them and then the next thought's going to be wholesome when it comes. Yeah. But if you have this and that kind of thought, then when you have a gap between the thoughts, the next thought that comes is more likely going to be an unwholesome thought. Yeah. So it's better to practice wholesome thoughts so that when you begin to have gaps between the thoughts, the next new thought's going to be a wholesome one after that. What if my mind is so scattered that I can't even like track an individual thought though? Recognize that and says, never mind, start again. Yeah. I can do this. Yeah. I could do it. I didn't track that one, but I'll track the next one. Yeah. So I guess you're tracking the thought of saying I'm gonna track, I'm gonna be mindful. Yeah. I'm going to be mindful. I can do this. And you've definitely tracked that one, even though personally, uh -huh. 
<laughs> I'm thinking a million thoughts a second. I'm like, uh, uh, you maybe can't I'm do not, it that way. I'm maybe about it. 10, maybe 10 a second. I'm thinking a lot. I'm thinking a lot. I'm kind of like really, uh, I don't want to say neurotic, but I feel like, especially if I, if I forget to be practicing, there's like so much activity and it's just like, like a weird, uh, you know, circus show, but. Okay. So yeah. can you, can you start putting some control in there and say, I will think only wholesome thoughts. I'm going to think about thoughts about what's happening right now rather than thoughts about what happened long ago. And I have thoughts about what's happening right now rather than having thoughts about something that may or may not happen in the future. Yeah. Wholesome thoughts about what's happening right now. Wow, this is nice. What a nice breath this one is. I can feel the touch of the air as it moves the wind. I can feel my foot on the floor. I can feel all kinds of things in this present moment. Yeah. But if I'm thinking about the past. So like, but like, okay, so I'll do that, right? Mm -hmm. I'll do that. I've been doing that. And then I'll have uh, some thought about. I'll have a thought about the future, but it'll be a very rational one or seemingly rational. And then out of habit, I'll shut it down and go back. And then it's lost and it falls away. Mm -hmm. And I'm Nothing like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I think like, well, maybe, you know, maybe there was something to that. Or is it just, am I suppressing it? Or was it just meant to be that I... Was that just I don't I don't even think you can. I don't know where this whole idea of suppression ever came from. Yeah. The psychologists knew all about it in the 1970s. Um, Fritz Perls had a system of top dog and underdog, and he was the one that started with the empty chair, the kind of empty chair therapy of the therapist and the client and a third empty chair. And the client then talks to the chair of someone in their past. That then led to getting angry at mom and pillow bashing. That yeah. then led to encounter therapy. And that's when everything goes wrong, when they say, oh, don't suppress your bad feelings, let them out. And then uh -huh. the guy would let it out in the therapy and then he'd go home and beat up his family. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm getting at is like, yes, that's the times... whole point. So let me finish with this. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. What they figured out was, is that it's not suppression. That's the issue. It's yeah. the fact that we're letting it out. Yeah, is yeah, the yeah. issue that we will be much better off to suppress it. That instead yeah. of getting into an argument or a fight with somebody, it's better to shut your mouth. Yeah. Okay. Well, if that's the case, then instead of having negative con uh, 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 negative uh, confrontational critical thoughts, having nurturing thoughts instead. Yeah. Suppress those critical thoughts. Suppress yeah. the criticism. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's the only way to do it. But the way to do it instead, instead of suppressing it, is replacement. Yeah, Just yeah. throw that thing out and have a wholesome thought instead. Yeah, or move on, basically. 
Yeah, just move on. This whole issue about suppression that I think is uh, a part of modern pop psychology yeah, because yeah. the real psychologists moved on from that 50 years ago. Okay, well, that's kind of what I was thinking because I was wrestling with that a little bit. Like, you know, I think Parker, you know, Parker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he showed, he showed, he shared this poem that I really liked from Buddha Dasa, which is like, I don't know what it was called. It was like, I love my dad or something. Have you, do you know that one? No. Basically, it was like, oh, I love my dad. He hugs me. He's really great. I love spending time with him. And then his dad sits him down and he's like, listen, uh, I lost my dad. Or I love my dad the same way you love me. And then I lost him and I was destroyed. Like, don't be attached or else you'll, you'll experience pain. And what I get from that is like, okay, lately a lot of stuff happens, something bad will happen that you're supposed to feel sad or whatever, whatever it may be. And then I'll just not feel sad. And then someone might see that. And I, someone might see that and be like, oh, you're suppressing your emotions. You're supposed to feel sad. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, like we were talking about earlier, you use the word sorry as like a tool or an acknowledgement. That's when you express condolences or whatever it may be without feeling bad inside, which is mm -hmm. what I have to work on. So it's like kind of an adjustment because lately something bad will happen and I'll just be like, okay. And that seems kind of like, that seems kind of rude. Like, or most people will see that as rude, but it's really like, uh, it's self-preservation. Well, you don't know whether they see that as rude or not. You're the one who is saying that they will see that as rude. Well, they, I think clearly in some situations, like, like actually, like people have been like, oh, well, you're, you're being anger wants you to be angry. Yeah, yeah. Pity party, misery loves company. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's use as those two examples right there. Imagine that you were on a big fishing boat and someone that you were standing beside falls overboard. Are you going to jump overboard with them? Or are you going to find a life raft or a life preserver, throw it to them, and then reel them in to get them back on the boat? If you jump overboard, now you've got two people drowning. Right, exactly. Protect you yourself. joined their pity party. That's what they want you to do. They want you to save them by jumping into the same sewer that they've jumped into. Yeah. But they're not out yeah. to get you. They just don't know better. They just don't know any better. Yeah. And the right thing to do is to keep your happy face, to keep your smile, and to tease them and bring them out of their pity party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. many people, they don't like that. They want you to, you know... Why don't you feel as bad as I do? Haven't I explained to you why you should feel bad? You must be suppressing, you know, that's. The... <laughs> yeah. It's like they're tempting you because they identify right. with their problems, their defenses. Because they identify defenses. with it. Don't yeah. identify with their problems. You can't help them out of it. They're, they're attached to them. Mm -hmm. A medical doctor. Then, in fact, here's one thing that's known, well known about students, yeah. medical students, is, is that they will either catch or give that disease that they're studying to a family member. 
And so they read one disease after another, after another, and they wind up having the symptoms of every disease they read, or they find someone in their family who's got the symptoms of that disease. They identify with the diseases. A good doctor does not. So if a doctor sympathizes with a patient who has a particular disease, then the doctor catches the disease. What kind of good doctor is that? No, a good doctor does not catch the disease that his customer or his client has. Yeah. That was happening a lot with COVID, that the nurses were catching COVID big time. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Don't get right. caught in the disease that your client has. And no matter, so bring it back into the real world. Whoever you're dealing with, don't get the disease that they've got right now. Don't catch that disease. Be yeah. above it. Help yeah. them cure it. You can't help them cure their disease if you've got it too. Yeah. yeah if you're yeah. in their pity party, you can't help them to yeah. come out of the pity party. Yeah. Right, right, right. That, that's how it works. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was having a little doubt about that, but I think that's... that's now you've confirmed my uh, <laughs> suspicions. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, Daniel, let's finish the call now. You're welcome to call back, but I got a couple of other people who are waiting. Parker's okay. one of them, by the way. Perfect. Great, great. Right. See you soon. I'm really yeah. glad that you called, and I hope to see you again on the uh, the the Sangha groups. Yeah, for sure. Excellent. Thank you. This is a good one. <laughs> All righty. Bye bye.